You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. Every page and every part of the Bible is valuable for us. But for many readers of the Bible, the Old Testament just seems too distant. There are mysterious sounding names, strange customs, prophets running around half naked, messages we can't decipher. To access the Old Testament, we have to cross not only cultural barriers, but time barriers of three or four thousand years. But it is so worth it if we take our time and dig into it and pray, and if we can learn something of the people of the ancient world, we can understand the messages that were given to them. And then we can understand and apply it to our own lives. You know, one way that we interpret the Old Testament is through the person of Jesus. Through Jesus, we clearly learn that there are some Old Testament laws and commands and customs that no longer apply today because they were fulfilled through or completed through Jesus. Secondly, the way that God worked in the Old Testament was through one nation-state, Israel. God works so differently today, and so there are different things there as well. Well, one of those commands today that no longer applies to us is God commanding his people through Moses and later Joshua to take the promised land by warfare, to drive out the existing nations. Even in the Old Testament, this was a unique command applying to a narrow historical circumstance. Nonetheless, as it washes over us the last several weeks, surely for some of us it has strained our vision, thinking of this warfare and God commanding it. It has strained for some our vision of a loving God, of a just God. We might wonder, how does this all fit together? And frankly, how is this different than Islamic jihad? How is it different than holy war? I've read quite a few individuals. I've talked to some individuals. But I really liked, uh, because here in our limited space of time, I liked what Tim Keller wrote. He, uh, I can distill it here in a few short sentences. But let me share a couple of things in relationship to this troubling question. Number one, this was not carried out on the basis of race. This is not the same as ethnic cleansing. The purpose was to break down the altars and to to evict, so to speak, the pagan worship from the promised sacred land. Number two, this was not about imperialistic expansion. The Israelites were commanded not to plunder or to enslave. They were... in the uh, uh, era of they lived in, that was something completely unheard of, to not plunder, to not enslave the people that you, that you take. Thirdly, the war is carried out as God's judgment on the Canaanite people. God is working through the nation to bring about a judgment to these nations. And it only comes to them through direct Revelation. 
It's important for us to think about these Canaanite people. Sometimes we think of these ancient worlds or lands where, they're, you know, where people are naive or they're innocent. These were not innocent, naive, backwards people. They were very sophisticated. They had military armament. They were violent and brutal. And they had been that way for hundreds of years. The cries of injustice, particularly from sacrificed children, had reached the courts of heaven and filled the courts of heaven. In the pattern of the Old Testament, whenever God brought about a judgment on a nation or a culture, he always sent witnesses first. Witnesses who would testify to the grace and love and justice of God. If that pattern holds true here, then we can assume they had their witness of God's grace and rejected it. Indeed, God had been patient with them for hundreds of years. Nothing less than direct or unmistakable revelation could be the basis for such radical action. Only God, who knows the beginning and the end, only God, who knows the beginning and the end, has the right to judge. And judgment will come for all at some point at the end of history or when Jesus returns. But the Father has the right to mete out justice now, prior to that. Only he, and that's what he did in this case. Because this is God's work, this is not a mandate for believers to move coercively against unbelievers. Nor is it a warrant for holy war by one faith against another. Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant believers all accept that the revelation of God is finished. There's no more revelation to be added. And if we believe in this historic view of the Bible... That it is completed, it is finished, it is revelation. And if we are committed to obeying it and not adding to it nor subtracting to it, then that acts as a real check on political power. Lastly, I hate to think of the world today. I hate to think of the world today if Judaism had been extinguished like all the other cultures that surrounded it. Thomas Cahill in his book called The Gift of of the Jews. It's a wonderful book. Cahill shows the immense impact that Judaism has had on the world. Our concepts of time, of individual dignity, of freedom, of justice, even hope and progress can be traced back to Judaism's influence on the world. If Judaism had been extinguished there is no doubt that the world we live in would be a far different and a far less humane world than it is. God had a reason to preserve them. And so I want to close the book on that question, though. I'd be happy to interact with any of you about that question. There's some more tentacles to it. I've given you just the basics. But as we talk about God and warfare and so forth, I thought it important to spend just a few moments on addressing how this is different than the holy wars that we see today. Okay, let's take a moment and pray, and then we're going to jump into Judges chapter 3. Okay, pray with me.
Father in heaven, we love you so much. We thank you that we are your gathered people, the gathered church. And thank you that in the presence of your gathered church, you are here. Pray that we would have open hearts today, ready to learn, ready to hear, ready to act. Let us learn from these examples. And God, let us be, as we later take the bread and the juice, let us be reminded of who we are, of what you've done, and the hope that is ours in the future. It is through Christ and his atoning sacrifice that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Today we go through our first round of these judges that we've been telling you about. The very first one is Othniel. We met him earlier in the book. He's a man who, uh, it says the Spirit of the Lord was with him in verse 10. And that the result in verse 11 is that he delivered Israel and the land had peace for 40 years. Quite remarkable. But as we said, the people would hang on to the spiritual coattails of the judge. And when that judge died, the people did a spin cycle right back into the same cycle of of disobeying God and then moving back into oppression. And a judge would rise up, someone who would take on the bully and would deliver the people. I was thinking about this message this week and I remembered this scene from the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that movie? Starring Lionel Barrymore who plays Potter and Jimmy Stewart, who plays George Bailey. And Potter is this mean, cruel, um, uh, sort of tyrant-like figure who rules over the town and exploits the poor. George Bailey is this poor guy who owns the savings and loans, who for generations in Bedford Falls, New York, has helped the little guy get four walls and a roof and a house to have and to call his own. And so Potter invites George Bailey into his office one day. And of course, he sits up here. He looks down at, ba- at George Bailey. And he makes Bailey an offer. He wants to buy out. This is an early merger. He wants to buy out the savings and loan. And so he offers to hire George Bailey. And he gives him an overwhelming amount of money for that day. And Bailey is just lured in. He's seduced. You can see the glaze in his eyes. He's thinking about what he can do for his wife and his children. And then in the moment of time, George Bailey has this point of clarity. He realizes what the bully is doing. And he stands up to him and tells Potter, I will have nothing, nothing to do with your scheme. Now I want you to think about that story, the allurement, the seduction, the moment of clarity, the resistance, the standing up. Because it's a good parallel to what we're going to see here in this Old Testament story. Beginning in verse 12, chapter 3. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defeated Israel taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So rather than drive Moab out, 
the Israelites became next-door neighbors. And Israel was so impressed with Moab's wealth, their security. But that wow factor over time spelled not W-O-W, but G-L-O-O-M, gloom. Moab became a tyrannical landlord, turning the promised land into a slum, with Eglon, king of Moab, playing the role of slum lord. Previously, the people had been mistreated for eight years. Now they've been mistreated for 18 years. And the ultimate irony, it says the Lord gave Eglon control over Israel. God uses Moab to work against Israel in order to train them, in order to discipline them, to get their attention. The same is true for us, isn't it? It's true for us. When we are easily impressed by some lesser God that pulls us astray, God will use that very same thing or that very same person to work against us. I know I've experienced that. Perhaps you have as well. Verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. People pray, and God raises up the next deliverer. And he is a left-handed man. Yay for lefties. Raise your hands, lefties. Raise your left hand. All right. There's a few of us out there. Yay for lefties. They are a beautiful exception to the rule. Now, he is already a recognized leader. He is chosen to represent the people in giving the tax burden. And we see in the next, we'll see in a couple of verses There's so much tax, it takes several men to carry. But Ehud is a man with a mission. He carries a weapon that he handcrafted in his metal shop in the garage after work. And it is fitted especially for this occasion. Short enough to be hidden, about 18 inches long, but long enough for its purpose. It's hidden away in the right thigh where no one will expect to find it. Verse 17. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Well, come on, that's kind of mean. It is not very polite. And it sounds a little strange to us here in 2016. But the writer has a purpose for his unflattering description. This is not meant to be personally demeaning. He's not taking an unfair hit below the belt. But he is commenting on something more than just the king's eating habits or his exercise clothes. The king's great girth hints at something else. His was a life, the king's was a life of self-indulgence. We might say of him what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. There Paul said this, 
for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, are walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. With their minds set on earthly things. Now their belly is more than overeating. It represents an insatiable appetite for more and more, for consuming way beyond what one person needs. It is agreed that twists even a good thing, making it perverse. Eglon's girth here represents a life of luxury and the exploitation of the poor. He is like one of whom Jesus said, Woe to him who is well fed now, for you will go hungry. I like what one commentator said about Eglon. He said this, Eglon was a tyrant who had grown rich at Israel's expense over the past 18 years. His physical stature symbolizes his greed, for it was the result of a luxuriant and indulgent lifestyle made possible by the wealth extorted from Israel. Let's look at verse 18 now. We're starting to get a picture here of all the characters, Ehud and Eglon being the two main characters. Verse 18. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. He leaves. But when he reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came back in to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he set them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. He raises the stakes. As King Eglon rose from his seat. Now, Ehud has devised an incredible plan. He took advantage of the king's vanity by appealing for a special audience with him. And the guards naively agreed. Ehud finds himself alone with the king with a knife under his cloak. Had he not been searched? Perhaps yes, but maybe not searched on the right thigh. Is it possible that Ehud maybe had some deformity that caused the king and the guards to underestimate him? That's a possibility. There are some scholars who... Uh, read the Hebrew in verse 15 to say something to that effect, but it's not really clear. We are not totally sure why Ehud, an enemy, is afforded this private encounter, except for the absolute dullness and thick-headedness of the king and his guards. They totally underestimate him. Could you imagine the Secret Service allowing a known enemy private audience with the president? Locked away in the Oval Office without at least raising a protest? Seriously, it makes the king and his guards appear like Colonel Klink and Sergeant Schultz in the old TV drama Hogan's Heroes. Now, if you are too young for that, go get the Netflix because you'll enjoy it. But Hogan's Heroes was a spoof on a World War II German POW camp 
where the American Hogan is always duping the German, naive German Colonel Clink. You might ask how uh, the king and his attendants become so dull, so vulnerable. And the contrast here between Ehud and Eglon is striking. Look at the next. Oops, I lost my page here. Here we go. Eglon was likely once an agile warrior. He's now overweight and dulled by his luxury, stands in a fog before a trained soldier ready to act with courage. And there is no fog with Ehud. His mind is sharp. His perception is keen. As a person of faith, Ehud saw that God's people were being oppressed by a king who is defenseless and who is unable to stand up against the power of God. It took a person of faith to see that. Eglon's dullness shows us what sin does to us. It saps us, making us spiritually dull. We become unaware, like him, of our own vulnerabilities when we become self-indulged. A spiritual attack can be launched at us. Satan can throw punches at us. And we stand in a fog, trapped and weakened by wrong appetites that we have not checked. The Proverbs can be true of us. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Our defenses can be destroyed by a lack of self-control. Now, here comes the warning part because the next part of our story becomes both violent and graphic and somewhat indelicate. Now, you remember I told you early on about this series there would be times where you're going to wince or you might feel embarrassed. This is one of these. It's going to move from R-rated to bathroom, bathroom stuff. You won't forget it. Verse 21, Ehud reaches with his left hand, pulls out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. Now that last Hebrew phrase is unclear. We're not quite sure what that means. But suffice to say, he acted quickly. He reached with this hand. The king just stood there befuddled, did not even cry out to his guards. He didn't know what was going on until it was too late. And in just a moment, Ehud would walk out past some of the guards with a smile on his face, have a great day. He carried no weapon and had no stain of blood on him. Now, if that was not R-rated enough, now it's going to get indelicate. His thrust cut the intestine. And doctors have verified that this can take place. It cut the intestine, and from the great girth of the king came blood, guts, and yes, excrement. The Bible tells stories in ways that will not be quickly forgotten. This is one of them. Ehud locked the doors on his way out. Look at the next verse, verse 24. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. 
They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found the master dead on the floor. Ehud had devised a plan to give him plenty of time to escape. And he found it in the most humiliating way to the Moabites. I don't know if I mentioned earlier that throughout this text, there is a satirical, there is a, almost a mocking tone towards the Moabites, a humiliation. The king's upper chambers included a bathroom, as we read. The king could move from one throne room to the next throne room very easily. Why did they think the king was using the bathroom? How did they think that? Well, in verse 20, we learn that he was sitting in a cool room. Scholars believe this very well could have been an area on the top of the palace that was built so that it was an open area that breezes could run through. Those breezes could have aided in the circulation of what the guards, as they stood outside that door, were digesting and smelling. And that persuaded them the king was in the other throne room. And so for fear of embarrassment to him or embarrassment to them, they waited. And they waited and they waited until finally propriety was set aside by all means. And they said, we got to go in. And so they break in the door and they find him dead. By by that time, Ehud was long gone. Verse 26. While the servants were waiting, he escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Syria. Did you notice something here? In both the way in, he, he, he passed those idols. Remember that? And then on the way out, he passes these idols. What is the author trying to tell us? I didn't know. And so I turned to my friend Corey Bacher, who is an Old Testament expert, to say, what is this all about? Now, you remember that I've said that there's a mocking, satirical tone to this passage. Here's what Corey said about why he would pass by these idols. You remember that the Moabites and their gods were so powerful. They were so impressive to the Israelites. But are they powerful and are they impressive to Yahweh? Here's what Corey said. In the ancient world, there is no way No way that any warrior would go off to war without sacrificing to the gods first in order to receive their blessing in battle. Usually this is a male child or a virgin daughter sacrifice. To not sacrifice would be suicide in battle and to reap the wrath of the gods. The fact that Ehud passes by the idols means He does not acknowledge their legitimacy, nor their power, and he is loyal not to them, but he is loyal only to Yahweh. He's not quite thumbing his nose at them, but that's kind of the picture and kind of the idea of it. These these gods that were so impressive, this whole passage is about their humiliation by Yahweh. Okay, verse 27. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said. 
For the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. What happened here is that the encampment is in, pushed up into uh, Israel's territory. Moab lies below it to the southeast of Israel. The Jordan runs in between that encampment and Moab. And what Ehud has already figured out is if we get into those shallow waters of the Jordan, that's the only place that they can pass to get their retreat back home. And that's where he stations their troops, and they take 10,000 of them. And the writer tells us they were strong, robust warriors to demonstrate and prove the power of God working. You see, all of this is an unmasking of the illusion, the illusionary power of God's enemies. They are not what they appear to be. To the ancient men and women that first read Judges, the author is saying, you have idolized paper tigers. A lot of growl, a lot of bite, but you push on them, and there's no power there. What is God saying? What was he saying to them through this? He's saying, you love their abundance, and so you worship their gods. And then secondly, when they became terrible landlords... You figured they were too powerful to resist. Your small view of me, your failure to see me as Lord over everything, caused you to be wrong on both counts. And there is an irony here that a discerning Jew, when they read this, would not have missed. And that's this, that what you idolize, the idol that you run after, will eventually become your oppressor. Now, isn't that exactly what sin does to us? It's so alluring. It's so seductive. It looks so attractive. We have to have it. And very often, it is even sometimes a good thing. But we look to it for identity. We look to it for self-worth. And ironically, once we possess it, we can no longer enjoy it for what it is. Why? Because now it has us. Now it owns us. Now it controls us. Now it tyrannizes us. And we are in its grip. And just like them, we assume it is too powerful for us to resist. I can't change. This sin that has a grip on me is too powerful for me to resist. We're just like they are. We're coming to the same conclusions that they did. God wants you, like like Ehud, to have a spiritual awakening. To see that sin is nothing more than a paper tiger, a toothless, breathless, false idol without power to stop the man or woman who believes in God. And like Ehud, he wants you to hate that sin He wants you to come against it with his power. And yes, he wants you to drive a knife right through it. For me, earlier in my life, my mentor and I used to talk about this passage as I struggled like many young men do with having sexually impure thoughts and desires twisted. And there are times when You know, you just sort of tease out those ideas. You don't really take them too seriously. 
And my mentor said, if you're ever going to change in this area, you have to hate it. You have to hate it. You have to have an awakening to see its cost on your life. And then you've got to take a knife and drive that knife right through it. In my older days, what I find myself needing help with so often now is this this inclination that I have towards jealousy. And I can't describe it too much here in detail, but, but it's something that I fight almost on an everyday basis. It's a penchant to continually compete and compare myself with others in all the fields that I live in. And if I come out better than person B, well, then I feel great about myself. If I come out worse than person A, then I feel terrible. A lot of us live that way. And we think it's just normal. That isn't normal. God has given us a life to enjoy. And if we could just stop being so competitive, if we would just stop comparing ourselves to one another, we could enjoy every good gift that God would give to us. And we wouldn't have to abuse it or misuse it to fill in holes in our lives. You know, I need to bring a knife through my own competitive heart. I need a way of seeing people and seeing my own life that is upside down. You know, I'm not this way, by the way, because of poor self-esteem. I'm this way because I have a bloated, distended ego that needs to find its security and acceptance in Jesus alone and not in things. It's it's a puffed-up ego that causes me to think that I can find my security or my worth in accomplishments and being better than somebody else. This is my constant battle, but I can't give up. I can't give up. I've got to keep fighting. I've got to keep driving a knife through that competitive heart. And some of you, all of you, have something like that. All of you have some area of your life that God wants you to have a spiritual awakening in that you will have the power and a drive with God's power to drive a knife through the heart of that sin that is oppressing you. The one that you thought you couldn't live without. Why has the church become so marginalized in our culture? So impotent in our culture? Surely part of it is because the culture at large has become very materialistic. There isn't a deep abiding spiritual hunger in our world out there. It's very materialistic. But also part of the problem is that sin is so rampant. Sin is so accepted. Sin is so embraced. So is, sin is so unchecked in the church. And it makes our witness for God dead. It takes a lamp, it takes a, a cover and puts it over the lamp of our lives. No wonder we don't feel like sharing our faith if we know that every day we're giving in and not resisting and capitulating and compromising without any fighting back to these things that engage our hearts. No wonder we don't share our faith in Christ. Now I want to share one more aspect of this before we, I close and we're going to break bread together. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is where satisfaction comes. In hungering, taking that drive. This is another thing my mentor told me. Those early days when that sexual drive was creating a lot of sparks. He, 
He said, take that same drive and move it in a positive direction towards serving others and loving God and doing things for God. You know, our, what sin does is that it fills our hunger with small things, doesn't it? Sin fills up our hunger and satisfies us, so we think, with small things. It's like eating some food that's not really good, but we, we think it tastes great. But it really tastes awful, but our appetite has been so misconstrued that we think that terrible food tastes good. And it's because our appetite is all just, it's all, it's all distorted. Sin makes us that way. But I do want to share one quick thing here because I don't think we should escape this. And that is that while the hunger for righteousness begins in our personal lives, righteousness, according to the Old Testament, righteousness in the Hebrew world was not just personal piety. It was not just individual righteousness. It was also social and corporate righteousness. And so in this story of a landlord gone out of control, we should just spend a moment saying that we should be concerned about those who acquire wealth unjustly at the expense of others. That should concern us as Christians. Now, there is a hearty disagreement about the government's role in how to remedy that. And my goal here this morning is not to take one side over the other on that debate. But I think that we as believers should be able to agree that the Scriptures speak to the issues of just wages. They speak to the issues of condemning exploitation. And if nothing else, if you are a believer who has the opportunity to speak up in your particular world, some of you have influential positions, or you own businesses, or you work in areas where you affect the wages of others, that could be a voice for you to speak up for wages that would be just for those that often don't have a voice in that. If you are a Christian business owner or a CEO, you can bring righteousness to your business practices and to your income policies. And if you do, that will enhance the voice and will enhance the witness of the church. You see, it's important for us to see, friends, that the righteousness Jesus speaks of does begin with And it's most important in the individual heart. That's where it begins. But then it flowers out and it spills out. And it's concern for righteousness and justice in our social world as well. And some of you are in positions where you can impact that and have a voice for those sort of things. Okay. I have given you plenty to think about this morning. I didn't have a specific Say, well, you know, here's the application, but I've been giving you applications and things to think about, things to reflect on all the way through this message. We need to pray. You want one practical thing. We need to pray for an awakening. Awakening in in your personal life, an awakening in this church, and an awakening in the church across our city. We need moments of clarity where the fog is lifted. And we can see again. You know, this morning, if you find that this message brings a certain kind of, maybe wrecks you a little bit, wrecks your sense of righteousness or self-righteousness, if you find that you're burdened by 
failure or burdened by regret. You're wondering, how can I ever start over again? Look at verse 30. What a beautiful verse this is. Look at verse 30. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace or rest in the land for 80 years. One act of courage brought 80 years of rest. Now, Othniel and Ehud are the only judges in this book that are called deliverers. That mean, word means savior. It means redeemer. It means rescuer. And indeed, Ehud is a picture of who else? He's a picture, he's a type of Christ. Ehud gives us a picture of what Christ did. Except this one man on mission, and in his death, he secured not only peace for 80 years and rest for 80 years, but he secured for anyone who believes in him rest and security for this life and in the age to come unending. And it wasn't just physical rest. The land was, had rest for 80 years. He brings spiritual rest that we receive when we recognize we are no longer under condemnation. We are free from guilt. And this, what he did, Ehud did, freed one nation. What Jesus did can free men and women from every nation. This is what this one man did. Let me have the... Uh, band, come on up, and I'm gonna. Uh, the ushers can begin to. You, Alex, you all can begin to release people, and uh, let me explain what's going to happen here. We're going to take the bread and the juice as remembrances of this one man on his mission, and the spiritual rest that he secured for us, and that he secured for anyone who will believe. In him. If you're new this morning, if you're one of our guests, you are welcome to take communion. Um, communion is an opportunity for any believer in Christ to remember, celebrate what Christ did in the past, the involvement of the Spirit's life in our present, and also our great future. If you'll just give me your attention here for just a few more moments. And then I'll stop and we'll just together get the bread and the juice. And if you would please hold on to it. Hold on to it and we'll take it together. I'd like to share this quote by C.S. Lewis. We talked about how sins can be. They can go ahead. They can go ahead. How sin makes our hearts small. We, we hunger for the lesser things. We hunger for lesser things. It's like we have this big heart and we throw down these things that we think will fill our appetite and they rattle down there because they're so small compared to what we need. And indeed, the good part of the good news this morning is that our physical appetites can change because they can change. We can learn to enjoy the foods that are best for us in the same way our spiritual appetites can be transformed. 
we can learn to enjoy spiritually the things that are best for us. C.S. Lewis said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then Lewis concludes, we are far too easily pleased. Don't be too easily pleased with the life and the abundance that Christ desires to give you this morning. I'll come back up in a moment. We'll share the bread and the juice together as we remember Jesus.